from the Three Story Method Podcast Network. This is the Serial Fiction Show. I'm Christine Daigle. And I'm J.P. Reinbush. Welcome to the Writer's Serial Fiction Show. This is a companion podcast to the Reader's Serial Fiction Show. If you haven't listened to today's show, we'd encourage you to pause and go listen to LP Styles' bonus spooktacular episode on our companion podcast first. We can only play half the episode. So if you like what you hear, check out the full episode free on Vela. The links to the podcast and the Vela episode are in the show notes. Woo-hoo. So, JP. Yes. There's been a lot going on for us this week. We were just there hanging has. out. We in were. Cleveland. In a beautiful old craftsman building. Mm-hmm. Doing it was fancy. Awesome stuff. It was fancy and spooky. So no one went down into the basement other than me to see those weird claw marks that were on the brick, but that's fine. Well, after you sold it that way, everyone else is like, no, you're like, come to the basement. There are four foot claw marks. We're like, no, we're not going down there. Like, no one went. So that could be, <laughs> I could have made that up and no one would know. I didn't, but... I'm just saying. I'm too much but of a yes. giant chicken. I, it was creepy. But we went there because we are now certified editors for Three Story Method. We are, which is awesome. I learned so much. I already love Three Story Method. And just learning from Jay Thorne more about how he uses it with clients mm-hmm. to provide author services was fantastic. And meeting all the other fantastic um, Three Story Method editors out there and connecting with them that was a blast 100 percent. i i'm like the crazy person who wants community and everything and now i have a community of editors that i can reach out to we all speak the same language and we can always give each other the right client oh it's it's beautiful it was beautiful i think one of our other editors adam said that was just a bunch of beautiful and authentic people and yes it was I just never wanted to leave, although I would have Mm -hmm. preferred my own bedroom, but that's another story. (laughs) That is another story, but I do have to say, you know, being in a house full of writers was pretty awesome. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Should we talk to us? We should talk to us in this special spooky episode. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. The happiest of all hollow days. (laughs) I don't know where that was going. Sam hey. But guess what? Before what? we go and talk to our to to you. <laughs> to myself. Um to you. Yes. Uh we should probably talk about pro writing aid because uh oh, why shit. not? I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh dialogue tags. You want to talk about those? Those are pretty cool. Yeah, and you know what? I do think that is awesome because it is like, hey, why are you using this? And um mm-hmm. There was a meme going around for one of the rolling things that said Snape Slughorn ejaculated. And yes, you don't want to do that. Like that <laughs> no, is a you do horrible not. <laughs> dialogue tag. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm one to make weird dialogue tags, but I really like using this tool regardless, just to make sure that I am using the right odd dialogue tags, if that makes sense. So I don't want a slughorn ejaculated <laughs> as, a, as a dialogue tag. Uh, that would be a mistake that I made, but uh, it highlights various different things that you say, and uh, it will either find them as normal dialogue tags, unusual dialogue tags, or where you have adverbs in them. 
And then how much of your document is dialogue? And that to me is fantastic because yeah. you can really see all these variations of how you are using dialogue. And you can even reflect that on how dialogue is being used in other works that are similar and find out, am I using too much dialogue? Am I using too little? Mm -hmm. uh, here's a here's a little hint. You're never using too much dialogue. Um, right. That's exactly, especially <laughs> in serial fiction, right? And it's like, yeah, you've got definitely. big chunks with no dialogue. And that's something you probably want to take a look at. Mm -hmm. I want all my people telling me all the things all the time. Don't, I don't need my narrator telling me the world building. Get me it in dialogue. Yep. So that's my my hot tip for today is is using this dialogue tag and making sure you don't accidentally put in that someone ejaculate <laughs> their dialogue at you because that's too much. That is too much. And, you know, if you want help with your dialogue tags, check it out. ProWritingAid.com, our discount code for 20% off, Serial 20, S-E-R-I-A-L 20. All that's right. right. Let's, let's talk to us. <laughs> yeah, I yelled. Exactly, I exclaimed. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're so weird. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> All right, so we have a wonderful hook. The wind outside my bedroom window sounded strange, a series of whispers that built into a painful wail. There is an artistry in crafting for sentences, and... This one takes something familiar uh, and mundane, and then it distorts it into something that many of us can immediately relate to, that sort of fear. How do you guys go about crafting hooks when it comes to horror? Um, I think that the thing that makes horror best is when it's relatable. And it becomes most relatable when you're taking that which is mundane and you're just twisting it a little bit. Um, you know, if people can identify with the setting, then you then you're cooking. Then you can start bringing in elements of the supernatural or elements of the weird. And in this, it's I guess in uh, some phrases, it's you begin with the ordinary world, and then you take that step off in, into the journey. So for us, horror has to be anchored in the ordinary world. Otherwise, if you if you don't suspend belief then you'll never be able to sell the reader. Yeah. And I think there's a lot um, in this first sentence that you might not pick up on the surface or on a first read. Um, you know, I think often in horror setting can be a bit of a character as well. Uh, but that whale in that first sentence is, is set up for some things that are going to go on later and it's going to come back over and over again. So that was pretty intentional. It's a motif too. Yeah. So when we talk about theme or armature uh, with this first episode, and then I see it kind of repeated over and over again, it's this need for Finn to preserve the innocence of his younger siblings. I really just keep getting that vibe over and over again. And I know, I know that you guys mentioned uh, in the readers portion that there is also a theme of alcoholism that kind of ties through, uh, through the monster. So I'm just curious, how did you guys construct theme if that was something you were thinking about or uh, how did you approach this portion when when you deal with alcohol and sexual and physical abuse you better be deliberate and you better have a a plan um because you're definitely going to be 
going into areas that some readers might consider controversial. Uh, you know, and I have a background in dealing with sexual and physical abuse and, you know, Christine and I both deal with, with children. So that was very important to us to deal with it in a sensitive manner and, and to deal with it realistically. Uh, not the story elements maybe, but certainly the, you know, the characters and the thematic elements. Christine, did you want to jump in and add anything to that? No, I think that's true. And I, I think it, uh, the theme is tied in a lot to Finn's character just uh, from being the oldest, of course, he's trying to protect his his siblings. He's taken on the protector role. He tries to deal with everything himself and to shield them from a lot of things, like you said. Uh, and I, so I think thematically, a lot of it is about how much can one person deal with on their own or no man is an island or, or what have you. Um, I think as a lot of horror is, we just dump so much stuff on him and how much can you handle before you break or before you need to uh, come with a different strategy than what you're currently using. So I definitely think that was heavily thematic throughout um, the serial. Don't you feel bad for Finn? Constantly. I mean, that poor guy. He had no childhood. <laughs> Terrible. Well, let's, let's talk about Finn. Uh, so he is your, your protagonist, at least uh, your main one to start. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you guys go about constructing him? What does that process look like for you two? Well, I think when we were conceptualizing Finn, if you're looking for like a an archetype or like he's a paladin, that's how you would classify him. He always does what he thinks is the right thing. He always takes everything on his own shoulders. So trying to break someone like that is um, kind of, I, I don't want to say fun, but a challenge for a reader. So when you have a paladin who's always doing the right thing, who's always taking things on his shoulders, you know, you have to, you have to challenge him. So that's why we constructed him that way. It was to be like, okay, what he wants is to deal with everything on his own. He wants to protect his family, but what he needs is to realize that he needs to ask for help. And he's really, really bad at it. And when he tries to handle things on his own, it does not go well for him. So when we look at the scene uh, for your first episode, I, I noted two scenes, uh, first one being, you know, Finn hearing his younger sister, Emma crying, and then, uh, her kind of this need that, you know, well, my mom's dead. Uh, and so he needs to give into his younger sister's fears to just call his mom and be like, Hey, she needs to hear your voice. She needs to know that you're alive. And the consequence, uh, I picked up, I don't know if this is true or not, but his mother either hangs up or they lose the connection, but either way, Emma actually never knows if, if her mother is alive. Um, it was like, oh, that's kind of heart-wrenching. Um, and then that scene followed up with them on the way back to bed, Emma hearing a noise and um, Finn deciding, you know, okay, I'm going to check this out. And, and then seeing that gross dead bird and the happy cat at the end. Uh, so how did you go about constructing scenes for the serial? Well, I definitely think in that first episode, you know, that was um, definitely the conflict is Emma has, has had a dream and she wants uh, Finn to call mom, but it's three in the morning and he knows she's not going to be happy. He's already has enough issues with her, so he does not want to call mom, but it's it's a choice between do I get more grief and horrible things from my mother or do I satisfy my sister? Uh, and so, of course, he he always will choose to satisfy 
his sister and to protect his sister and their feelings. And so he does that. Yeah. The irony, the irony is that Emma's right. Her mother's dead. I mean, maybe not physically dead, but for all the woman's, you know, the role in, in the lives of these children, she's certainly not living as their mother. So there's, there's a, the irony of that scene and, and that whole discussion is meant to highlight the relationship with the mother. It's meant to give the, it right off the bat to, to raise the stakes regarding the kids and regarding Finn. Yeah. And I definitely got that. Like that was so sad to just know that bait. She is dead to them. She doesn't even care enough to hang on the phone. Uh, so yeah, you, you did very well in that first episode. Yeah. And that was the second part as well Was you know, he's doing that. He's hearing something wailing, screeching outside. He's scared, but Emma's more scared. So it's, does he, you know, whose fear does he deal with? And of course he chooses to deal with his own and go outside, even though he's creeped out as we do in all good horror movies, you know, you're like, don't go out there. The character usually goes out. So Finn goes Mm -hmm. outside even against his better, better judgment and, you know, um, against his fears. I wouldn't have gone out. Me neither. I was not going out there. (laughs) That's why you have porch cameras. Just saying. That's why you have dogs, man. That too. Get out there and check that out. (laughs) All right. So what are some of your favorite horror tropes and which ones did you end up using in the series? Favorite horror tropes, huh? You know, mine is don't go in the basement. Like that's my favorite horror trope when they're, they're, uh, convincing themselves that there's nothing supernatural going on, but they're going in that dark basement anyway. And the reason that's one of my favorite tropes is because whether you're reading a horror book or whether you're watching a movie is it messes with reader emotion by having them do what the reader wouldn't do. The reader for, feels more tension and fear for them because that's, it's, it's like, I wouldn't go out there. So that's my favorite horror trope is to kind of use an adjacent or opposite reaction to what the reader would do to heighten that tension or to heighten that fear. Don't go in the basement. Yeah. And there's a related trope, I think, which is misdirection, um, which is where you're, you're leading your, your reader along one point and then you're, you're twisting that reality a little bit to, to sort of get a, a fear factor involved. There's a scene which I'll try not to give away, but there's a scene where there's almost a car crash and uh, that comes after uh, a conflict with another character. And the con, you know, you're so involved, hopefully, with all the events that have gone on in the story that when we reach that point where the car becomes a threat, that hopefully the reader is taken by surprise and, and, you know, they're off their game, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And my other uh, favorite trope too, now that I'm thinking about it is um, I guess I would call it, is it supernatural or don't show the monster? So where you don't know, uh, I love that. That's my favorite is, is it something supernatural? Is it in their head? Is it something ordinary world? Is it? So I like it when you don't show the monster. That's one of my favorite tropes. I agree i think well you know there's so many different when you look at different types of horror you you have different tropes you you may or may not have um you know for instance one of the tropes that you have and uh that may be identified as just when you think everything's over and 
everything's been resolved. The monster comes leaping back into the scene for that final confrontation. And uh, that's another one of those horror. I'm not saying we use that horror trope. I'm just identifying that they're a different sort of ones that I think writers play with. And some of them mm-hmm. just get really old. Yeah, the false you know, ending is a comes fun a point one. where you've got to say, yeah, but you, yeah. at some point you you got to say it's time to, you know, it's time to turn that on its head or it's time to, to play with it. Some of my favorite horror is always the the psychological, you don't know what's real until it finally gives way. And then like hereditary when you see all the little pieces that you can trace back to the beginning and you knew that it was a clue the whole time yeah um, i love those kinds of horror yeah that so. retroactive motion in books and tv i love that too movies yeah we we use one little trope in there that's awful it's 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 the eyeball trope you know there's nothing worse than having somebody mess with your eyeball and there's there's a scene in there if I'm not mistaken, where the potential exists for a scalpel in the mm-hmm. eyeball, which I just said we wouldn't be gory or disgusting. And here I am talking about scalpels and eyeballs. So just a thought. Well, <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Body horror is the worst. Um, it is. And, but it can't. Yeah, can be done so well without having to be splatterpunk so i i trust you guys to continue the story on without splatterpunk so not that there's anything wrong right, with that. right but <laughs> when you expect one thing and then get surprised with splatterpunk that's another and now we don't do that so in your opinion what goes into crafting the perfect monster you know, monsters are nothing more than a reflection of ourselves. When you look at Halloween, and I'm talking about costumes, when I see a teenager wearing a monster face or a little kid wearing a monster face, of course you're wearing a monster face. Because if you're wearing the face of the monster, the other monsters aren't going to come for you. And so the monster is nothing but a reflection of, of who we are and, and what we are. And if you're going to have a good monster, it has to come from within the, the the characters, in my opinion. And even if it's not, even if it's something totally alien, uh, the perceptions of, of it have to be relatable. The the horror has to be personal. And I mean, look at Jaws. Jaws was a monster movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hardly ever see the monster. It's almost entirely... Uh, those three characters, they're, they're the ones who, their interactions are, are what drive the story and keep it going. Yeah, same thing with Alien, right? Yeah. You almost never see Definitely. Alien. Love that. Did you devise or hash out any set of supernatural rules or otherworldly elements of your story? If so, what did that process look like? Just with the Irish mythology, mostly. What we, we use, we took from that mythology. So the world building was already sort of done because we already used those set of rules and just kind of translated it to a modern setting. So what would it look like if this was happening through technology? What would it look like uh, in a modern setting? So we kind of already took some world building that was already done and just translated it to to now, which maybe is a bit of a cheat, but it worked pretty well. 
So now that you guys are a few months into the process, what does your daily and or writing routine look like? Oh boy. Um, we're writing pretty much every day, consistently back and forth. Uh, when we finished uh, season one of the other serial, then we just did another outline. So we outlined, all, you know, all the seasons, write the episodes. Um, we alternate first drafting and then going through uh, depending on what stage we're at and what story we're at, but we're, we're writing pretty much consistently every day and passing things back and forth every day to keep up with obviously the, the releases for serial fiction, because we're doing two serials that are releasing twice a week, which is four episodes a week, which is a lot, but you know, it's manageable so far. And yeah, it will stay manageable too. And one of the things that I've seen really helped was the outlining. I read that I read the uh, three-story method, um, and I did the the twelve-stage uh, outline for the sequel. And I, as I was doing the outline, um, you know, when I'm outlining, I've noticed that my writing goes a lot faster because you've got the the, the skeleton now; you're just feeling in the flesh. And then you know, Christine comes along, reads it. And says no and then you're filling in other flesh and and then christine is, is adding her part and we're going back and forth but it's a pretty easy go we have no ego so it's a pretty easy process when we're writing together what does the revising process look like is it different than molecule thief and has either of those processes changed uh, since the release of bella i think they're pretty much the same i mean we do our um for our first draft and then we do another draft and then maybe, you know, whoever did the first draft looks at it again. Um, we have been giving them to alpha readers and then beta readers and then a proofer. And that's pretty much what the process would be. I say it's probably like three or four drafts, maybe a revision uh, after alpha feedback, maybe some tweaks after beta feedback proofer. And so far we've been keeping up with that. Okay. And we're, we're, I don't want to jinx it, but probably, you know, writing a month ahead of where we're at, which, which is fine. Excellent. Well, what have you learned after releasing this Vela that you would do differently? You know, I, it, I'm looking forward to when Vela is available on the Kindle. When, I mean, I think Amazon has done a great job rolling it out, but I think that I look forward to where Vela is going to be in the next uh, year. I, I think there'll be a lot of changes. Um, so, I mean, I'm happy with it now, but that's because perhaps my, you know, I don't have any experience in, in other formats. I'm looking forward to uh, expanding that. Christine, do you have thoughts on that? No, you know, I'm trying to think like uh, maybe we could have, had the first few episodes move a little faster. I know serial fiction moves a little faster, but going back, I'm, I'm like, it's necessary. So if that's a barrier for entry to people, I'm not sure how much I care. Cause I'm like, yeah, those initial episodes might be a little more character development and world building and it's going to rip after, but you know, hopefully pe people like it enough to, um, to give it a try and to get past those free episodes. So I, I sometimes I'm like, ah, should, should those few episodes be a little bit faster, but the people who come in, come in and they really enjoy it. So I, I know, I'm not sure that I would have done anything differently. 
I I don't think any of those episodes are slow. Really? Which which which? Yeah, the first few of Molecule Thief are a little bit slow. They're but they're not. Oh, I don't know what you are. mean in slow. They're character development, right? So it's right. not like action, action, action. There's a it's a lot of character development. Even though I mean there are earthquakes and a fist fight and uh, Spencer face planning into a fish and cliff scaling, and they may be a little bit as slower than. <laughs> that's as, long as, relating, as long as a character is relatable and it's hooking the reader that's all that matters a, a reader can identify with the character they'll yeah. be very patient in, in yeah. my experience i think serials are more about uh character and emotion than you know plot anyway and yeah maybe you could give a gut punch in the first episode we could have maybe done that but i'm actually pretty happy with with how things are going so is there anything else that you two would like to say to someone who is looking to start a serial? Uh, read a lot of serials so you know it works before you get in there. Because I think what I thought a serial was and what it actually is, is a couple different things. Um, just make sure that, you know, you have a backlog of episodes. You can commit to a consistent schedule, whether you're writing, you know, daily, three times a week, two times a week, once a week. Once you set those those expectations, readers expect that. So make sure you do what's manageable for you and just enjoy it. I think serial fiction is a little bit about wish fulfillment. So just enjoy, write what you enjoy and your readers are going to enjoy it too. I I have an observation, if I may. Um, I think that television has evolved in the last, you know, since streaming began. And where you get a story being told in eight and 10 uh, episodes and to follow the entire story arc throughout that whole season. And I think that that's taught me a lot about serials, being able to watch how a story arc plays out in 10 episodes on HBO. And each episode has to stand on its own. And each episode has to hook the reader. And each episode has to be able to, to prep the reader for what's coming. And at the end, they'll have to fulfill not just all of the requirements of, of story, of the art of story in each chapter, you have to fulfill it in the entire arc, which is challenging, but it's, it's very cool. And I, I think that that's something in the sequel to Molecule Thief, you're seeing a lot more than when we wrote Molecule Thief. I think it's, it's certainly much more serial oriented than, than this one is. Yeah, and I, I think that's true. I think the more we're going along, the more we're we're looking to uh, TV, um, where you have the this this episode is a whole story, but throughout the season there's an overarching story. And for anyone who was a nerd and you know, like the Doctor Who Matt Smith season, they have that crack in time. Every episode is a complete story, which might be six or seven serial episodes if you're going to write it out. Uh, but at the end of the season, you got the big baddie, the big boss, the final challenge. That wraps up that thread that grows uh, through the whole TV season. So I definitely do think that that's a, a great format for serial. Well, perfect. Well, thank you too for coming on and talking about Dark is Away. Thanks so much for having us. Our thanks today to LP Styles for letting us break down their episode. We want to thank you for listening to the Reader Serial Fiction Show. If you know someone who might enjoy the show, send them your favorite episode link. And if you want to leave an Apple podcast review, we read all of them and use your suggestions. You can also leave a comment on the episode on our website, SerialFictionShow.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, we have a Patreon where you can get 
serial fiction show episodes early. We also have tons of other things in the works, so check us out at patreon.com slash serial fiction show. Thanks, and we'll see you next time with another serial fiction episode. And that's a wrap! Ooh, a wrap! A mummy wrap! A mummy wrap! It's so spooky! It's so spooky! I can't. I was in the lab late one night. (laughs) (sighs) It did the mash. It did the monster. The monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard graveyard smash. smash. It did the mash. mash. Have you been watching your Hocus Pocus? No. Aww. I can't even, I can't even, <laughs> that's just it. We started a movie last night and we were, we had 20 minutes left of the movie and Josh was like, I'm tired. And I looked at him and I'm like, there's 20 minutes. We can finish the movie. We didn't finish the movie. I'm like, come on. <laughs> By the way, that's about the third movie we haven't finished yet. And I'm just like, I just, we can't, I can't. I can't. I was trying to get Sean to watch something with me. I was trying to sell him on Hereditary. I don't think he sold. But then I was like, well, what about Midnight Mass? Because I want to watch that. And he's like, no, I don't want to watch series. So I'm like, fine, I'll watch it myself. So I watched the first episode. And I would, I don't know. I'd like freaked myself out. I never get like, like I do. I get scared watching horror movies and I do have nightmares. I admit it. But I usually am like, I can watch it. And there's like nothing even scary in it other than like startles, you know, like, mm-hmm. So I spent the whole episode just like nail biting. And then at the end, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a guy that did Bly Manor and Haunting of Hill House. So it's not going to be that bad. So then I like unscared myself. It was really. (laughs) I unscared myself. (laughs) I unscared myself. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not going to be scary. It's that that Hill House guy. (laughs) I loved Hill House. I loved it, too. But it wasn't like it didn't terrify me. It was just like. It just hurt my feelings. Yeah.